0: Good evening, Redemption Church. Looking forward to being with y'all tonight. Tonight is going to be a little different. If you hear me and Pastor Jimbo, I think, is the same way when you hear us preach. Normally, we're going to have one passage, and we're going to walk through just that one passage. But tonight, what I want to show you is the scene of the crucifixion. And to do that, we're going to hang mainly in Matthew 26 and 27. I'm also going to reference Mark, Luke. I'm going to reference John, uh, John chapter 19, Luke 23. Uh, I'm going to be referencing some things from Mark 14 and 15. I want you to just hang with me in Matthew, okay? Um, The stuff from John is going to be up on the screen. I'll tell you where this is. If you want to look it up later, I want you to. If you, if you want to look it up and you miss when I tell you where it is, ask me afterward. I want you to be able to look it up. But I also don't want you to be flipping so much tonight that you miss what we're talking about. Does that make sense? So I want you to hang with me, Matthew 26 and 27. And I want you to grab a piece of paper or dog ear a page, take that little ribbon in that's in a lot of Bibles. And I want you to go to Psalm 22, and I want you to mark it. You're going to forget that I've mentioned Psalm 22, okay? And we're going to come back to it right at the end of this sermon. Now, here's the other thing I need you to do for me tonight. I love to preach this passage, but most of this is stuff you know. Most of this is stuff that people just know. We gather it going to church a few times, but I hope tonight at the end of this, God's word and I promise it won't be my sermon, and I think that will make sense at the end of the sermon. I hope if you look at things you already know, that you will look back and God's word will blow your mind tonight. Um, I, I hope and I believe that with all my heart. It's what it did to me when I saw this in Psalm 22. And when the Lord um, showed me this, through reading and just learning and studying this passage, um, I think you're going to love it. And I hope that if you're a believer tonight, you leave here uh, looking at the scene of the cross and realizing Jesus really did come for anyone who would follow him. Um, And that as you have conversations, you can look at the cross and say, this person was there and they relate to you. I hope if you're a believer in this room, you know that no matter what mistakes you make, God's not done with you. I hope you see that he picks us up when we fall. If you're not a believer, if you've never trusted Jesus, I hope you see the cross and I hope you see God's word and I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you about who Jesus was as a man and that he always has been and always will be God and that he came to us when we couldn't come to him. Uh, and you see what the cross says to us tonight. I know we just prayed, but if you would allow me, I'd like to pray over our time together one more time and we'll get started tonight. So, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you illuminate your text in our hearts and minds. I've asked this multiple times today, Father, and I ask it again now. I pray, Lord, that uh, as I teach through this, uh, that you would give us attention, that you would give us interest, that you would help us to grow deeper into this gospel that we love. And Lord, that we would remember this is not just a story that we've heard before, but it is where we put all our hope. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what we're going to see tonight is everyone who stood at the foot of the cross. We're going to see what they saw, and we're going to experience what they experienced a little bit, as best as the literature allows us to, okay? Now, in doing that, that means we're going to have an encounter like they had. Encounters, I always tell people, are not just times where we meet someone. They're not just times where we, you know, see something. Encounter is is a more powerful word. Encounters change us. When I was in junior high, I stepped on a snake one day. I had some neighbors who went on vacation, and every year they would have me plug in and unplug their swimming pool while they were going on vacation. And one evening while I was going to do that... I stepped in a piece of grass wrapped around my leg, and I looked down and realized that wasn't a piece of grass. It was a grass snake. This is the only time in the history of preaching, Jimbo. I think I've told two snake stories in one day. Let's go figure. Did not catch that. But anyway, so this grass snake jumps on my leg or jumps off my leg. I scream at him and uh, scared me to death. And uh, the lady, the, they had a lady of the house's sister was tending the, the garden. She actually thought I had been electrocuted the way I screamed. You can imagine. Um... But since that day, see, that's an encounter. They can be brief. Um, since that day, I've been terrified of snakes. Not even, this was well after the one I told you about my dad this morning. I can't touch the picture of a snake in a book, okay? I, I don't, um, I, I see some of you thinking, I may pull a prank on him. Don't. You want to live to the next day, okay? That's not a threat. It's promise, all right? I uh, can't can't deal with that, okay? So uh, I, I I fell out of my desk in high school watching snake videos in biology uh, one time sitting in a theater in Oxford, we were watching previews to a movie, and in these previews, a snake, I didn't know it was coming, snaps at the screen. It was a packed theater. I slapped the man sitting next to me, him and his popcorn. Uh, all of those are things I would not have normally done, but because of that encounter, I was different. What we see at the scene of the cross is everyone who comes there leaves different. Now, I don't mean that everyone who comes there leaves trust in Jesus. Some of them leave hardened to this and are determined in their minds to say it's not true. But the ones who come and believe it, they're changed differently. They're a different person than they used to be. They aren't what they were before, and they become something and do things they wouldn't have done before this moment. So I want us to look at the cross and see it as they saw it, and as I believe the gospel writers through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit intend for us to see it. We're going to start in Matthew 26... So we're going to set up the scene of the cross, and then we're going to look at the scene of the cross. To do that, we're going to look at the people groups who stood there. First group we're going to look at is the disciples. Now, I talked uh, this morning, Brian, right? Am I getting it right now, Brian, right? Yeah, I was going back to Keith. I was like, no, Keith. what I said. Brian was talking about being in the military this morning. Um, I have some, where I live, where I serve is New Palestine Baptist Church in PICU, and we're close to several military bases. So it always resonates when I talk about someone falling asleep on watch. We're fixing to see the disciples fall asleep on watch. Now, we need to remember a couple of things before we read this passage. We need to remember that they're living on that side of the cross. And in all the predictions Jesus gives of the cross, the disciples don't get it. The, when Peter says, you're the Christ, Jesus says, that's right, and I must suffer and die, and three days later rise again. The next verse, if you read Mark, Peter says, and Peter rebuked him. you got to love Peter. You're the Christ. Now, let me tell you what kind of Christ I want you to be. <laughs> uh, That's a whole other sermon for another time, but they they don't get what's got to happen. Jesus tells them to do something in this scene. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke is the one who tells us this is where he sweats drops of blood. Uh, It's that scene as he's praying. Now, he asks them to do something as he's praying. What did he ask the disciples to do? Watch and pray. But what did they do? Yeah, they fell asleep. Mark does something very, very interesting with this. If you ever want to go study Mark, if I ever get a chance to preach here again and the Lord lets me preach Mark 13, Jimbo will look at this. At the end of the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus has told them the temple's going to be destroyed, he tells them, he says, the command, he says, and what I say to y'all, I say to all, he says, stay awake. And he gives this parable where he says, stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. And in the next chapter, you see the disciples fall asleep in the garden of Gethsemane. Um, But then the last thing in Mark is Jesus says, Tell It is the angel telling the ladies, go tell the disciples and Peter, the one who messed up the worst, that Jesus is going to see them in Galilee just as he said. Um, it's a beautiful picture of redemption there. Um, but here we have that scene. We're looking at Matthew's account. we got to remember these disciples don't get yet. They don't get it that Jesus has to go to the cross. Jesus himself is praying for what? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup, which is symbol of Old Testament wrath, Let this cup pass from me. So let's see what happens in this scene. We'll start in verse 44. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again, the watching and pray words. Verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, this is kind of a, I don't want to say tongue-in-cheek, but I don't know a better way of saying it. Jesus goes, hey, wake up. The people you were supposed to watch for is coming. They fell asleep on watch. And so this rise, let us be going is not rise, let us escape. The idea here is rise, let us go meet Judas and his thugs. So here's what happens, verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. and And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So they're coming after Jesus like a Mary Shelley monster Frankenstein. Clubs and and torches, all right? They come to get Jesus, and these disciples are waking up to see that the thing they were supposed to watch for has happened. If you're military, they fell asleep on watch. I need you to get this in your mind as we go on to the cross. We're going to see other groups before we get there, but when the disciples walk up to the cross... And they see Jesus beaten. And y'all, I told you this morning, sin's gross, and the scene of the cross is gross. When they get there, there's not a little crown of thorns just sitting on his head. Read the Gospels. This thing's been beaten into his face. He wasn't beaten with the 39 lashes like you read Paul being beaten. He's given a Roman beating. This is beaten until one more lick's going to kill him. Ribs are going to be exposed. That's going to be important in a little bit. Every little detail might matter tonight. The ribs are going to be exposed, um, especially with him being a condemned man. We'll look at what they did to him a little bit. I need you to get that vision of this just gross scene. He's he's not given the provision of this little loincloth. He's hanged naked outside the city. They've spit on him. This is a terrible thing to behold. And when these disciples that are there, the disciple who Jesus loved at least, probably John himself, when they walk up, they're going, if I'd stayed awake, you, you follow <laughs> If I'd stayed awake, when the disciple walks up to the cross, they stand there and go, This is my fault. This is my fault. They have more reason to be ashamed than anyone else at the cross because they're the friend who's failed Jesus. Now, see that? Let's look at the next group we're going to see at the cross. Going over to verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. It is just almost irony that he's even referred to as a high priest because at this point this office has been sold between Jason and other people and it's almost like a political office that can be bought. Um, So Caiaphas, the high priest, supposed to be the holiest man in the world, (laughs) where the scribes and the elders had gathered, Peter follows. Go to verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council. Anybody's Bible say something different than council? Elders, Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin, whichever one you want. I say Sanhedrin because that's the first way I remember hearing it. So both of them are pronounced that way. Uh, the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. That's that's for lack of time and better way of describing it. That's your Jewish Congress. Now, yes, they're under Rome, but they also get to do this self-governing thing, and this is a religious issue. So this at this time is going to be mainly Sadducees, but the time Matthew's writing is going to be Pharisees in control of that. It's just like Republicans and Democrats on that regard. Okay, who's in control? Um, Jesus is brought before this council, this Sanhedrin, and they're going to give him a trial. Uh, They probably have to meet the next morning, which we see, to make it a legitimate thing. But they're brought before this council. Now, these people are supposed to be perfect. They think they're getting in. The Pharisees, anyway. Your Sadducees don't believe the soul goes to heaven. But they think they are living perfectly before God, and that's why they're blessed, or that's why they're going to heaven one day. They believe they're getting it right. Are y'all with me? Mm Mm-hmm. Y'all you know I me? Mean? All right. Let's look what they're willing to do because they hate Jesus so much. Verse 59 Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They're seeking what? Like, you follow me? Like, these guys think they're perfect. The wife goes to Jumart, buys cinnamon. We've got to give 10% of that cinnamon to the fellowship hall at the synagogue, okay? Uh, they 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 don't speed on the highway, okay? They think they are perfect. And they're willing to find what kind of testimony? Now, what's the good modern word for that? A bold-faced lie. Like, y'all, they think they're perfect. That's one of the big ten. Thou shalt not lie. And then the next verse, the end of that verse, false testimony that they might put him to. They're willing to lie in order to commit murder. They're willing to sin so that they can sin and they think they're perfect. Why do they hate Jesus so much? Why do they want him dead? Just to give you an idea of the bitterness they have for him, they're going to accuse him of saying he would tear down the temple and build it again in three days. What he said was is that the temple would fall. He never said he would tear it down, okay? Okay. They're going to find that false testimony, and even that don't work good, but they find a way to to, uh, put him to death. Uh, Verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? See, they're looking for the Christ, but they're saying, you're not him. Their big argument, and I want you to remember this, their big argument is that you're not like David. David was a political leader. David made us rise to power. That's also why the disciples couldn't believe he was going to be the Christ because that's the Messiah they're looking for. Sometimes we need to quit trying to make Jesus into our Messiah that we want and let Jesus make us into the disciple he wants, in fact, all the time. You know? But that's, that's what's going on here, okay? Now, these guys start mocking him. They hate Jesus. Why? Y'all, since the Hasmonean dynasty revolted against the Seleucids, this is in between Malachi and Matthew, or Joel, if you think he he wrote last, depending on who you think there. Um, This is the intertestamental period. They revolt against the Seleucid Empire. They are going to rise up Sadducees and Pharisees, and these guys are going to be the religious leaders of everyone in this nation. It's the same reason pop stars and rappers hate each other okay, Um, whoever's got the top hit at the time, you with me, they've had it for like 450 years and Jesus comes along and people start listening to him instead of them. Does that make sense? Now they don't like him because he's taken over this popularity. They hate Jesus and they need him out of the way and they begin to function like a mob. Get him out of the way and we'll make the Romans do our dirty work for us. Because they didn't have a choice, but that's how they're doing this, okay? All right, so they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna get Jesus killed. So we get the religious leaders. When we go to the scene of the cross, they're going to walk up like anybody else want to mess with us. You mess with the religious leaders. You mess with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is what you get. Somebody else try to take us down. They walk up proud, They gloat over Jesus at the cross. They call him names at the cross. Just come on down and save yourself, Jesus. They are arrogant approaching the cross. Are you with me? Next group we're going to see. Next group we see. Flip on over to 27. Go to verse 27. Now, this group thinks Jesus is an idiot. And why wouldn't they? I want you to think about what they've seen. They've seen religious people you realize being religious can make God look really bad? I, we say relationship, not religion, all the time. Relationships come with rules, okay? That's okay. You say, no, no, no. Look, my wife and I, we have a relationship. That relationship comes with rules, such as I'm hers, she mine, and we ain't nobody else's. You with me? That There's rules with every relationship. So religion ain't necessarily a bad thing, unless you're just following the rules like these... Pharisees and Sadducees were and thinking the rules are going to get you there without a relationship to something. Okay, that's just crazy, all right? Um, here we've got uh, we've got these religious people acting like Jesus is an idiot, and you got the Roman soldiers believing it. Now, look, maybe you walked in here tonight and you think, well, I've seen church people, and I really don't believe in them. Church people are hypocrites. Yes, we are. We are hypocrites. Thank goodness we're just forgiven. Okay. Um, any church person that claims to be perfect, like I said about the perfect church this morning, run, he's probably a cult leader, okay? Um, we aren't perfect, we're messed up. Uh, these guys have only seen the religious people at this point, though. Now, maybe you've seen religious people. There's something awesome that happens when we quit looking at fallen people and we start looking at a perfect Savior. And we're going to see these centurions, we're going to see these soldiers see Jesus. Because these religious leaders are too good to go into these Gentile quarters. He's going to be taken into the Antonia Fortress, and they won't go in there because that's Gentile areas, and they would be unclean. But what happens is they get away from the religious people, and they just see Jesus. So if you've never trusted Jesus tonight, and you're one of those people, um, and I don't mean that condescendingly, I've been dangerously close to being there too, who goes, the church is so messed up I can't follow Jesus. That's That's like saying... I met this awesome boy or girl, and I'd love to marry them, but America's messed up, and they're American, so I can't love them. That, that makes You, you want know I mean? don't, me? Don't write Jesus off because we're messed up. Jesus saves messed up people. You want the Jesus that loves messed up people because whether you believe it or not, we all got issues. I got more issues than Sports Illustrated. Maybe you're better than me, okay? But we all got them, okay? And we need a Jesus who loves people with issues. Now, maybe you thought Jesus was an idiot because not only did you see religious people, but you saw Jesus' legit friends. Not just people who claim to have a relationship, but people who actually do, and they messed up like Jesus' friends. Did you know that as friends of Jesus, we can make Jesus look like an idiot? You ever had an idiot? You ever had a friend make you look like an idiot? You ever made a friend look like an idiot? <laughs> I, I had a friend, uh, JD, one time as I was getting on the bus. My mom drove this bus, and I was in uh, either fourth or sixth grade. I can't remember, but... I had been dating a little girl named Angela. Now, that meant I had wrote her a letter. She had circled yes, and we'd been super awkward for six weeks, okay? One day, she was acting more weird than normal, and as I was getting onto the bus that afternoon, she walks up and hands me a letter and walks off, and so my mom's sitting on the bus seat, and JD is uh, my best friend, who, by the way, if, if... I need Jimbo to meet J.D. because he's like the Jesus-loving version of J.D. They even look a lot alike. It's scary, okay? Uh, so anyway, J.D. is standing with me, and he I, un, I unfold the note, and I read it. It says, Walt, I don't love you anymore. I love so-and-so, love Angela. And my chubby little heart crumbles, and J.D. sees the letter, okay? And he outs me to the whole bus. Dude, you just got dumped. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and it's my mom's bus route, so guess who the last person off the bus is? All right, my mom hears it, and she said, oh, it'll be okay. Now, as a parent, I know she was thinking, yes. You know, but that whole, my, my friend made me look so dumb. Maybe you're here, and you're a believer, and you look back at the past month, the past year, the past couple of years, past day, And you go, man, I really messed up, and I'm afraid I made Jesus look like an idiot. He's got something to say to you at the cross. He's got something to say to you at the cross. But yes, our decisions, our actions have consequences, and these centurions have seen religious people, and they've seen friends of Jesus, and therefore they think Jesus is an idiot. If you're here tonight and you think Jesus is an idiot, I want you to go through the same thing they went through. Not the mocking him but the seeing just Jesus, getting past us messed up people and seeing the Jesus who loves us. Because that's what's going to happen to these guys at the cross. But let's see how they start. 27-27, let's see how they treat Jesus. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That's about 600 people, okay? And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews! What have they just done? If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll visit uh, the floor of the Antonia Fortress. You'll see uh, this place where Jesus was mocked. It's one of the few places that were like, This is where this happened, okay? Uh, there's all kinds of places where like, it's close to here. This is one of the times you know. In the floor of this area is a board game that that Roman legion carved. They even put the scorpion, their symbol, uh, in the board game into one of the rocks. And this board game was known as the Game of Kings, and it was only played over condemned men. Uh, They would roll dice. Uh, Jimbo, we're Baptists. Random number generators, we'll say instead of dice. So anyway, uh, they would roll these, and and whatever they, uh, literally a board game. Wherever it landed determined how they mocked the prisoner. And so that's what they're doing over Jesus. They put a scarlet robe on him because that's a sign of Roman loyalty and uh, Roman royalty, and he's claimed to be Jewish royalty. And they've put a crown on him and given him a reed, a scepter. They're mocking him as a Roman king. They're saying even the Romans would bow. You, you see this? They think he's an idiot. But he never does anything back. It's amazing. He never does anything back. And they keep mocking him, and then they do this to him. Verse 25. I'm sorry, verse 25. Verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed, so what's supposed to be the scepter, and struck him on the head. Now, remember, that crown of thorns is on his head. They're beating that thing into his face, okay? And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. They think Jesus is an idiot, but somewhere in this, something starts to change. They're not the only one who thinks Jesus is an idiot. Who else is at the cross? We've seen the disciples. Now, that includes, you know, when they say the 12, we're talking about the 12 proper, proper, but the 12, the disciples can be a lot more than just that. So there's disciples at the cross, there's religious leaders at the cross, there's Roman soldiers at the cross. Who else? Yeah, I'm, I'm putting them in, and family, I'm putting them in with part of the disciples, okay? The thieves. The thieves. We always remember. You know, the one on Jesus is right, get saved. He didn't start out that way. Go down to verse 44. It continues to describe how they mock Jesus going to the cross. And in verse 44, it tells us this. Luke elaborates even a little more on this in his gospel, chapter 23, verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him, robber or robbers, also reviled him in the same way. And Luke tells us they both did this. Now Luke goes on to tell us this, that as those robbers are hanging there, that robber begins to realize, wait a minute, this guy's not like us. He's not like us. Tonight, if you walked in here thinking Jesus was an idiot, I hope the same thing will happen to you that happened to these guys at the cross. This robber realizes, one of them realizes... Man, he's who he claimed to be. The other robber on Jesus' left, he's, you know, he's sitting there and he's going, why don't you save us if you're who you say you are? And then one of them, and, and thieves, to be sure, y'all, these are probably more like insurrectionists. This word just means kind of hardened criminal might be a better translation here. The other one, you know, he's making fun of Jesus and finally one of them realizes, man, so in Luke, he does this. He says, look, he doesn't deserve this and we do. Can you imagine... You're hung on a stick outside the city gates. You're hanging there till you die. The world can make fun of you. You're exposed. And you realize he's the Son of God and I made fun of him in this situation. You look up. Uh oh. You follow what I'm saying? You don't want to be in that situation. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now that's this is all in Luke. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's admitting Jesus is who he claimed to be. And Jesus looks at him. I tell you what I do. If I'm Jesus, I look at him. I go, Oh, I'm I'm going to remember you, all right. You tied to a stick, and I got a bucket full of lightning bolts waiting on you, homie. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now there's a lot to that. He didn't say one day. He said, two day. Normally, it would take days for someone to die on the cross. But John tells us that what happened to the thieves, so that they didn't leave a body hanging, they broke their legs, and they died that day. So that's what happens. This is what happens, (laughs) not that we get our legs broken and we die, but when we realize Jesus is who he says he was, and we give our lives to him, be it five minutes left, or 50 years, or 100 years. When we do that, Jesus says today, and not just today, but the rest of our lives. He has the rest of our lives, and he's not letting us go no matter how long that is. Today you'll be with me in paradise. The man's lived a whole life that's going to mean nothing in these last five minutes God has taken putting in Scripture, and who knows how many people has been reached through that. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how long you got left. God has a plan for you. All you got to do is trust Jesus. He looks at this thief and he says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Summing that up, he basically, he's saying, You're forgiven. You're making fun of me a minute ago, but you're forgiven. Now this centurion, he's still down there thinking Jesus is an idiot. And he's down there, he's going, You know, he has bet on Jesus' garments. Luke 23 also tells us this. That this, that as he was betting on Jesus' garments, we, we know these verses, but we don't usually know that it's the same verse. It says, and they cast lots for his garments. That's important. That's the same verse where Jesus says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This centurion's done all these things, and then Jesus eventually dies. He cries out, and he dies. And when he does, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. Now the centurion and those who were with him, seeing the earthquake and the things which had come to pass, cried with a loud voice, Surely this was the Son of God. Now you think the thief was in a bad position. This centurion put a crown of thorns on him. This centurion mocked him, saying, You're not a king, and acting like he was, not knowing that he was bowing down to the king of kings. This centurion just realizes, I literally drove the nails through Jesus' hands. Just picture this man standing there, looking at the blood that is on him, that he caused to be shed, thinking about the insults the night before and the morning of that he hurled at this man, thinking about every stroke of the whip going, what have I done? I deserve this. This is my fault. But what did Jesus say? Father, forgive him. I know traditionally we're taught that Cornelius is the first Gentile conversion. But with all my heart, I believe that's the first Gentile conversion. Some people even believe this centurion is Cornelius in the book of Acts. This man, do you think he held on to those words? It doesn't tell us that he heard them, but I believe he did. Father, forgive them. What does that mean to you if you stand there and you go, I just did this. What's God going to do to me? Father, forgive him. It's beautiful. He went from thinking Jesus was an idiot to he is who he says he was. Yes, the earthquake, the veil ripping, he saw all that, but he realized Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be. So we got two groups left and we're done. we got the disciples. We get a good look at what happens with the disciples in John chapter 19. I'm not going to make you turn there. I'm going to paraphrase. It's verses 25 through 34. That's really where I'm looking at in John tonight. That's various things we're going to reference, but we'll start there. So Jesus is hanging on the cross and he looks down and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved is how John 19 refers to it. That's probably John himself. Jesus looks down and sees him and he is standing next to Jesus' mother it seems, it never just outright says this, but the way it writes, it seems like Joseph probably died when Jesus is younger. So he's standing next to Mary. And Jesus looks at him and he says something. Now, I love Jimbo Stewart. Great man, means the world to me, has been a great partner, confidant, advisor in ministry. But if Jimbo ever does anything to me, that leaves me on the outskirts of the city, nailed to a cross, being mocked by other preachers and dying at the hands of political guards. Jimbo better stay away from my mama when I die. I'll find a way back. Y'all follow what I'm saying? I look at this man and I say, get away from my mom. Jesus looks at him and he says, woman, behold your son. You behold your mom. This is, this is Jesus telling the disciple, take care of my mom. Now, what does that mean to a man who fell asleep on watch just a couple days earlier? I mean, think about it. Jesus looks at him, and what I'm saying is, if you just stayed awake, dude. Jesus doesn't go, get away from my mom. He doesn't go, you failed me the other night. Jesus goes, I have a job for you now. Maybe you're the friend of Jesus and you're in here and you feel like, I made Jesus look like an idiot. I've failed, I've messed up, I've done this. Jesus hasn't thrown you away. He looked at the same disciples who failed him in the garden and said, I have a job for you now. And God has a job for you now. It may not be vocational. Ministry, it may not even be teaching. But there's no small calling when God's the one doing the calling. God has a job for you now. If those men can go to the cross and have Jesus look at them and say, I'm not done with you, then he's not done with you. It's beautiful. As that disciple stands there and he meets Jesus' eyes and he thinks, if I just stayed awake, Jesus says, you're forgiven. So our last crew, we're done. I I know this is a long sermon. I know you know most of this. But oh boy, don't miss the last group. The religious leaders, the know-it-alls, the one who know how everything ought to be done, the ones who have it right, walk up. Anybody else want to mess with us? They mock him. They revel in this. And then right before Jesus dies, just a few little things he says. Matthew 27, 46. This is actually the verse. I don't have time to give you my testimony tonight, but this is the verse a guy named AJ shared with me the night I became a believer. But Matthew 27, 46 says this, and about the ninth hour, he cried with a loud voice saying, Lama, Lama, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabatani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love this. This is the most Jesus thing I think Jesus does. (laughs) Jesus' whole style is backwards from ours according to the scriptures if you want to find your life you got to if you want to be first you got to be if you want to declare victory cry for help my god my god why have you forsaken me it's wonderful the next thing these religious leaders do one they show their ignorance to anyone around them but two they get real scared why they say, he calls on Elijah. There was an idea that Elijah would come save a righteous man. Hmm. They get real scared. They say, they offer him a painkiller. They're like, let's just see what happens. You just read those next few verses. They go from mocking to, huh? How does he do that? How does Jesus cry for help? And these guys who are so prideful go, uh. Go to Psalm chapter 22. Get to Psalm 22. I need somebody to read verse 1 for me. Who's got it? No, Psalm 22, 1. Ain't that Matthew 27, 46? Jesus quotes the first verse of the psalm. The implication here might very well be that he quotes the entire psalm. um, Because that's the title of the psalm, if you will. He at least quotes the first verse. Whether he quotes the whole thing or not, these religious leaders are going to think through it because that's the hymn book they got at their synagogue, if you will. Y'all, when I say the religious leaders know every word of the Old Testament, one historian said that if you took a nail, I mean literally, they knew especially the Pharisees. One historian said that if you took a nail and drove it through the scroll that a particular Pharisee studied from, he could tell you every word the nail hit. They, they literally know every word. So when Jesus quotes this first verse, y'all, they began to think through Psalm 22. There's so much in this psalm. I'm only going to walk you through verses 14 through 18. But there's a lot more than just that. Just picture this religious leader who's been standing there. Anybody else want to mess with me? You can't be the Christ. You're not like David. And here we have a psalm of David. Verse 14. Psalm 22, 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. They would separate the shoulders going on to the cross, not break them, not a bone broken. They'd pop back into place on the cross. All my bones, remember this is poetic language, so you're going to see out of joint bones. Poured out like water. Let's come back to that now in the next part of this. My heart, second half of verse 14, my heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. John 19. They broke the thieves' legs. But when they come to Jesus, Jesus is already dead. So they don't break his legs. What do they do? Stab him in the side. and What comes out? Blood, and we say water, it's clear fluid. And I'm not telling you your Bible's wrong. It's a, Greek is hema hydro hydro They would look at Sprite, glycerin, water, call them all hydro. Clear fluid, you all hear me? the pericardial sac around the heart. Now, I'm not getting too much into anatomy here because that's not the gospel writer's intention, but I want to show you something. How many of you, you, you've been told Jesus would have suffocated on his own fluids on the cross? He didn't suffocate on the cross. He would have had he hanged there long enough. But I'll show you he didn't hang there. That's yeah, not what he did. Now, what's the last thing he did? The gospel writers tell us. He, he screams, says, <laughs> Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished! Suffocating man can't do that. But a man with very low blood pressure, you know, somebody who's been nailed through the wrists, who's been beaten with a cat of nine tails, who's had crown of thorns beaten into their face, who's been nailed through the tarsals of the feet, they got low blood pressure. The pericardial sac around the heart begins filling with a clear pericardial fluid to make up for that. If you put a great amount of stress on the body, the heart collapses on itself, blood comes out into that sack, and you die. You with me? And that's cool because Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. The last thing Jesus does is scream, which is the action that causes the heart attack he dies from. You with me? Now, all that is just anatomy and stuff. If we get to heaven and the Lord says, you're wrong about that, okay, fine. But what we're not wrong about, blood and clear fluid comes out the side. Psalm 22:14. 14, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And they literally begin to watch. A few minutes after he says this, his heart melt out of his side like wax. So preacher, you're reaching. Just keep going with me. Verse 15, remember, There's more than just these four verses, five verses that I'm giving you. Verse 15. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus said seven things from the cross. I've already referenced six of them tonight. The only one I haven't referenced, and why would they even record this? Because John in 19 tells us that it fulfills Scripture. What Scripture? This one. The only thing I haven't referenced is Jesus also said from the cross, I thirst. Right there, he'd be thirsty. Okay, Walt, you're still reaching. Fine, keep going with me. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me. What did they call Gentiles? Dogs Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Before I read this next part, we need to talk about the history of crucifixion. Trust me that you don't want to study it. (laughs) I studied where crucifixion come from and i literally look, i'm not telling, i had nightmares for 2 weeks discovering how people came up with this method of torture so suffice it to say it starts with the Assyrians impaling people in the worst ways the persians around 450 bc are going to going to come up with crucifixion as we think we know it okay we don't know a whole lot about crucifixion all we have are descriptions because these bodies would be decayed, they'd tear down their own wood. We have one artifact of a crucified foot, known as the Galilee foot, okay? But we have descriptions. So crosses may have looked different than what we think, all that type of stuff, but we know they happened, okay? And we know they were bad. The Persians, about 450 to 500, start nailing people to a cross, okay? The Romans perfect it and make it as bad as it's going to get. It is. It is such a horrible way to die, common people were expected to not talk about it. you with me? Um, to even speak of this would be like using foul language fluently in public in our culture, which ain't as bad as it was when I was growing up, but y'all get my, my point. To even speak of it's taboo. It's that bad. But that doesn't happen until around 450 to 500 B.C., 500 years before Jesus. Does anybody know what year David began to reign as king? 1010 B.C. 1010 B.C. Half a millennia before this is even invented. And he's writing about the end of this verse. What I'm telling you is crucifixion's half a millennia away. And verse 16 ends this way. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, the only possible concept David has of that is Saul being put to the fence wall at beth but nothing indicates they nailed him. They tied him. You with me? What's that got to do with anything? Half a millennia before this, David picks to use the word Ka'ari. Now, if you're holding a Bible that says something there about like they at me like a lion, the word Ka'ari can mean at me like a lion. But the Old Testament, in two, around 220 B.C., okay, so 220 years, 250 years before this is going on, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. That book's called the Septuagint. Sometimes when you're reading at the Bible, it'll say the LXX says. It's referencing that Greek Old Testament. Okay? And when they translated from Hebrew into Greek, they translated Ka'ari, which can mean at me like a lion or can mean pierced hands and feet. I know that's a wide range of meaning, folks, but the word run can mean you're trying to be president or your refrigerator works, okay? Words have a wide range of meaning. When they translated ka'ari, they translated it as pierced hands and feet. You with me? Before Jesus. Keep going, verse 17. I can count all my bones. Remember the beating with the cat and nine tails? I told you ribs were a be exposed. They stare and gloat over me. What have they been doing? Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, I don't want you to get the concept that David is looking into a crystal ball, into the future, seeing the cross. David is writing about David's own life. He's writing about a time of suffering. He's writing about a time where maybe he's on the run or maybe he is... Suffering from from bad political decisions, we don't know. But David's writing about David's own life. They say, well, well, what do you mean? I mean the Holy Spirit inspired David to write this way. And these religious leaders accuse Jesus of, you can't be the Messiah because you're not a leader like David. And Jesus quotes David about David to these religious leaders and goes, I'm not like David. You see this? Why do these religious leaders go from, come on down from the cross to, huh? Because he just showed them he's who he claimed to be. Now, picture that if you're that religious leader who lied and had him killed, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, this is, what have I done? And you either completely sell out to say he's not the Messiah, or you believe he is the Messiah at this point. So what was Jesus saying to them? You know what I thought he was saying? I thought he's looking at them going, I'm who I claim to be. Now guess where you're going when you die. (laughs) It's not what he was saying. He's looking at them and saying, I am who I claim to be, and I claim to be the one that can give you forgiveness. How do I know that? Who took Jesus off the cross? Not disciples. They're still scared to death. Nicodemus. John's the only one who tells us about Nicodemus. But what is Nicodemus? A Pharisee. And Joseph of Arimathea, a man of the council, who's now seeking the kingdom, does become a Christian. Religious leaders are who come and take Jesus off this cross. God even saves Pharisees. So what's the message of all this to you tonight? Well... What happens when you stand before the cross? You can stand before the cross and go, this is all fairy tales and nonsense. If Jesus is who he says he is, he's going to have to prove that to me. One thief did that. Some of the religious leaders do that. Prove it. But Jesus didn't call for us to have proof. The scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And you can't have proof and faith. Or you can stand before this cross and believe he is who he says he is, but that's a hard thing. Because everybody who does that does this. The disciple comes and he says, this is my fault. I should have stayed awake in the garden. The thief goes, I deserve this. Not him. The religious leader stands there and goes, this is my fault. I lied. The centurion stands there and goes, this is my fault. I nailed him there. Everyone who stands before the cross and goes, "My goodness, he is who he claimed to be," he goes, "Oh no, this is my fault." I don't like that part. I didn't like realizing I was an enemy of God. No one wants to go, "I am opposed to God, but y'all, before we trust Jesus, we have to realize that we are born enemies of God. The gospel, as Trip Lee said, is the story of the hero dying for the villain. The bad part is, the hard part is, what I don't like is, I'm the villain. If I don't sin, we don't need a Messiah. We all stand there, and it's the part that offends our culture so much. The past generation was offended because it told them, you can't earn salvation. Our generation's offended because we're told we need salvation. But either way, the gospel makes us look at us and go, I'm not okay. But look what happens the second we do. The Pharisee, this is my fault. I'm who I claim to be. You can be forgiven. The thief, you're who you claim to be. You're forgiven today. You'll be with me in paradise. The centurion, he's he's the son of God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The disciple, I should have stayed awake, Jesus. You're forgiven. i got a job for you now. See, the beauty is, the cross only has two responses to whoever you are. You may sit here and and you may identify with one of these people we talked about, but the decision is the same. You either go, I'm never going to believe this, and you be determined to walk away from it. Or you go, oh no, I'm broken by this. And that's the very second you hear him say, but I forgive you. The beauty is, as if that's for the first time, if you're here tonight and you were thinking Jesus is an idiot, or you just didn't believe any of this was true, maybe you didn't, weren't hostile to Jesus, you just didn't know and you thought it wasn't true, and tonight you're in God's word and you're hearing that it is true, the response is, I'm yours, Jesus. And it's gratitude for salvation. It's trusting Jesus and becoming his. If you're here tonight and you're the religious person, and y'all, we all have to be careful with that. The Philippians had to be careful with that. We have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, making sure we're trusting Jesus, not the fact that we're church people. Have you trusted Jesus or are you trusting church? Are, it, it, are you going to heaven because you repeated a prayer one time or because Jesus saved you? If you're in here and you're a religious person, Jesus radically saves and changes religious people. Yes, there's rules that come with the relationship, but you go from rules that don't have a relationship to rules that you follow because of a relationship. Have you, have you all ever seen that person, and they go, they, they think they're dating somebody, they're not dating, and they act like they're in a relationship they're not in? And you're all looking at me right now like, man, that's crazy. Exactly. Being religious without really knowing Jesus is crazy. Okay. But when you really know Jesus, the rules are not some burdensome set of rules. It's relationship that the rules go with, and the rules are only there because there's something more. Would you trust Jesus that way tonight? If you're here and you're a disciple and you've been following Jesus for years, but you look at your life and you go, man, I sinned here and I messed up here, would you hear the message of the cross that it don't matter what you've done, he still has a job for you now? We have this tendency to say, I sinned. I just got to live out my life here now. No, God's not done with you. And the, beauty thing, the beautiful thing is, is it doesn't matter which one of these people you are. The response is always, Jesus, you're who you claim to be. I'm yours. Whether this is the first moment you're realizing that or the thousandth time you've been comforted by that, our response at the cross is, Jesus, I'm yours. So tonight I'm going to let the worship team come. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask Pastor Jimbo to come forward in just a minute. If you're trusting Jesus for the first time, you're hearing this and you're going, I believe this is true, and I'm not sure what to do with that, but I believe this is true, would you come tell him that and let him walk with you about what it means? If you're here and you're a believer and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, please, if you want to, come pray, but remember, decisions don't happen in altars. They happen in hearts. And If you need to come up here, that's fine, but would you deal with what the Holy Spirit says, Would you hear the restoration of I have a job for you now and begin pursuing what that is? Would you respond the only way a follower of Jesus can respond? I'm yours. Let's pray together in our worship team, and Pastor Jimbo will come. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we are so thankful that when we fall to pieces as followers of you, when we fail to act like followers of you, that you don't throw us away. Lord, I know that there are things that can shipwreck a calling, but there is nothing that will shipwreck salvation. And I know that if I were to make shipwreck of this calling, you would still have some purpose for me. I am so thankful that you don't throw us away. I'm so thankful that in the things I have already missed, that you didn't just throw me away. You are so good. You are so good. Father, I am thankful that you came to us when we could have never come to you that when we can't obey the rules, you are perfect, that when we thought you were crazy, you were all-knowing. I am thankful for your word and how it points us to you. I am thankful that your Holy Spirit calls us to you, and I pray over these here now that you would speak, Father, that you would speak in hearts and minds, and that we would respond in the only way we should, that we are yours. As people deal with that as they leave, Father, I pray that your Spirit continues to guide, and what does it mean to be yours? Lord, I'm even more thankful for the end of these Gospels that tells us you rose from the dead, that the sacrifice was accepted, and that we are atoned for and called to be your people because of what you've done. We love you. Father, please have your way now. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.